Beloved congregation, last week we began to consider Christ's remarkable response to the sneering words of the scribes and Pharisees who sneeringly said, this man, this one, receiveth sinners and he eats with them. And their goal was to insult him as deeply as they could. They viewed themselves morally superior to him. And they could not fathom how one who claimed to be a teacher in Israel, how a rabbi could actually sit down and eat and drink with publicans, with sinners, and with harlots. And how remarkably did Jesus respond? As I pointed out last week, they could not have honored him more than by summarizing his entire ministry with the simple word, this man, this man, who is none other than Emmanuel, this man receiveth sinners and eats with them. And Jesus responded, as we saw last week, by proclaiming a threefold parable, because ultimately those three parables have one theme. And if we go to the very end of the chapter we read, it ends with these words, and was lost, and is found. And that's the theme of those three aspects, those three components of ultimately one parable. So Christ spoke of a sheep that was lost and could have never made its way back if the shepherd had not taken the initiative to find that sheep and to return it. We read of a penny that was lost, a penny that could have never been returned to its rightful owner if the owner had not gone out of its way to find the penny that was lost. And then we came to the crowning piece of this threefold parable. And last week we considered that story, that amazing story, which was the ultimate goal of what Christ was teaching, a story that so profoundly sets before us the heart and the character of God. But that story is not complete yet. We only considered the first half of the story because the parable begins by telling us that there was a man who had two sons. Not just one, he had two sons. And so we considered what happened to the first son. But now we must consider what happened to the second son. Because congregation, we need to understand that Christ addressed this parable to the Pharisees. His primary intent was to communicate the gospel to them, to get their attention for the truth, to get their attention for who he was. And that's why he told a story that was so contrary to their way of thinking. As I mentioned last week, the common rabbinical story had the exact opposite outcome, where such a young man who had lived in sin, who had lived uh, a vile life, when he came back, he was assigned to be a slave. Now Jesus tells them a story of a young man who had made himself utterly vile, who had made himself utterly despicable, 
who in the minds of these Pharisees would have been the very chief of sinners. And then Jesus tells them that that young man, when he returned, did not become a slave, but was fully restored by his father, who went out of his way, not only to embrace this young man, to kiss him, but he went out of his way to reassure this young man that he fully embraced him, that he fully restored him into his favor. And no doubt, that story would have been highly provocative to the Pharisees. But that's the intent, you see. Christ wanted to tell them a provocative story that would compel them to listen to what he had to say. Because what we sometimes forget, at least I did for years, we have to realize that Christ came to save sinners. And that Christ cared as much about the Pharisees as he cared about the publicans. Too often we think of the scribes and Pharisees in a very negative way. And when you read the Gospels, of course, they were the great opponents of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were ultimately responsible for having him nailed to the accursed cross of Calvary. But they were sinners. They were lost sinners. And they didn't realize it. They were so self-righteous, so pleased with themselves. But Christ came to save sinners. He came to save harlots. He came to save publicans. But he also came to save Pharisees. And his whole intention was to address them in such a way that he would get their attention. And no doubt, he did. And so he goes on by telling us what happened to the other son, the elder son. Both received their inheritance when the younger men requested it. And so the second part of the parable begins like this. Now, the elder son was in the field. So, geographically, he was very close to his father. Geographically, he lived near to his father, while his other son, the other brother, was living a riotous life, a life in which he indulged in every conceivable form of sin. But as we will see, as we progress to the second half of the parable, Though he was physically near to his father, geographically near to his father, in his heart, he also lived in a far country. This young man, this young man was just as lost as his brother, except he did not realize it. And so what, what unveils what really lived in the heart of this young man? Well, his reaction to what he heard when he came and drew nigh to the house. And he heard music and dancing. Of course, this is a different kind of dancing than the popular dancing today. But what that simply is telling us, there was a real celebration going on in the home. And in verse 24, the last verse we considered last week, we saw that the father went out of his way to celebrate this extraordinary event that his son, whom he had considered lost, that that son had come back. And this was a matter of great, great joy. And as we pointed out last week, 
that that theme is woven through this whole chapter. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's joy among angels over sinners that repent. And ultimately, why do the angels rejoice? Is because the Father rejoices over sinners who repent. The congregation, I want you to pay attention as you read this chapter on your own, how that theme is so very prominent even in this section. So verse 24 talks about the celebration. Verse 25 talks about the celebration, music and dancing. Verse 27 talks about the celebration because the servant explains to the elder brother what's going on in the house. Verse 29 and 30 again refer to that celebration. And then the chapter ends by the father saying, It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Let's just stop and pause there for a moment, congregation. Because again, that tells us so much about the character of God. We have no idea, we cannot even begin to fathom what cause of joy it is to God when a sinner responds to his grace, when a sinner responds to his word. That's, the, the, that's one of the dominant themes of this chapter. And so that tells us that Christ wants us to know that his Father is a Father of abundant grace and of abundant mercy that we may never think of God the Father as a God who is reluctantly gracious, a Father who primarily hides His favor. No, this is a God who overflows with joy when a sinner repents and when a sinner returns unto Him. But the elder brother is not happy at all. It says he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he asked, he was, he was intense about it. The Greek indicates that he, he kept on asking, what's going on here? What's happening? And why did he ask that question, boys and girls? Well, he was not accustomed to such celebrations, especially since his younger brother left. There was sorrow in the house. A father who grieved over the fact that his younger son had forsaken him and now suddenly, as he returns from the field, as he returns from his duties, he hears this noise, he hears the music, he hears this celebration. And it's something that greatly, greatly irritates him. It makes him actually, it makes him angry. Because when it says in verse 28, and he was angry, again, the Greek word implies that he exploded in anger. It was, like a, it was like a spark being thrown into combustible material. Exploded in anger. And that anger, that anger reveals what was really going on in the heart and life of that young man. He's angry because of his father's very poor judgment. He cannot fathom, he cannot fathom that his father, he had quote-unquote served, that that father would go out of his way to celebrate the return of a man whom he considered to be a bum and a good-for-nothing, a man not worthy of such attention. And what this exposed, you see, 
And the reason he exploded in anger and became, or was so irritated is that he was a young man who thought very, very highly of himself. We will get to that in our second point. But we can say here already that this anger, this explosion of anger, is the anger of a self-righteous man who is angry when God saves great sinners. Sinners who have made themselves utterly vile. It's the response of those who outwardly live a righteous life, who strictly observe all kinds of precepts, and who become angry when they see those who have lived in sin, who have wallowed in sin. And when they come to salvation, when we see God graciously dealing with them in mercy. And why is it so offensive to the self-righteous person? Well, you see, a self-righteous person is a person who thinks very highly of himself. A self-righteous person is someone who really believes that God will be gracious to him precisely because he so strictly follows the precepts. The self-righteous person is a person who ultimately believes that God will be kind to him precisely because he lives an outwardly such an extraordinary life. But let's not think that this is only to be found in the self-righteous who ultimately are ungodly, as this young man was. Outwardly, he lived a life of conformity. Outwardly, he would abide by his father's rules and precepts. But it's obvious from this story, obvious from his reaction, that there was not one ounce of love in the heart of this young man for his father. He loved, he, he loved his father no more than his younger son, who had blatantly turned his back upon his father. But secretly, he thought that, that by being, or by strictly following his father's guidelines, that ultimately he would be rewarded for who he was, that he would be rewarded for all that he had done. And of course, we will see in a moment that everything he did was fueled by a, a wrong motive. And so suddenly, when he hears this celebration going on, when he perceives how overjoyed his father is that his younger brother has come back, suddenly he realizes that all that he has done, all that he has invested, all his efforts, ultimately do not rate him any higher than his brother. Suddenly realizes that his father loved his younger brother, a younger brother that he despised, as we will see in a moment. He despised him. At congregation, so it still is. This is what we call the, the elder brother reaction. And we have to examine our own hearts. Because, you know, even a man like Jonah, Jonah was guilty of that elder brother reaction. We know the story in chapter 4, when Jonah goes and sits on a hillside, and he's waiting for God to execute judgment upon the Ninevites. 
Ninevites whom he despised, the enemies of Israel. And it didn't happen. And we read there, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. But we also read that in Acts 13, when Paul is preaching to the people in Antioch of Pisidia, there were many Gentiles whom the Jews despised. But many Gentiles heard the gospel gladly. But many Gentiles came to conversion and embraced the gospel that Paul was preaching. Then we read, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Congregation, we need to look into the mirror of this story because we all have a tendency to think highly of ourselves, even after grace. We all have that tendency to, to respond in that elder brother reaction. And it's to be understood, it's, it's to be expected from someone whose religion is merely an outward veneer, as was true for the scribes and Pharisees. But even God's children have to crucify that aspect of their flesh. Because congregation, our flesh, the nature of our flesh, is that it wants to think highly of itself. And of course, what God demonstrates over and over again that our righteousnesses are but as filthy rags in God's sight. That the only reason God is gracious to us is for the sake of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why by nature we will never submit to the gospel. That's why it requires the mighty work of God's Spirit to bring us to our proper place. To bring us to the place where we see ourselves the way God sees us. So that we will then realize that our only hope is not in my accomplishment, not in what I do, not in my strictness, not in my, in my righteousness, not in my conservatism, whatever else it may be. But the only way God can accept a man like me is for Christ's sake. But now what's so beautiful is how the Father responds to all of this. So the servant explains in verse 27, Thy brother is come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And then we read verse 28, and He was angry and would not go in. Again, the, the Greek is very strong here. He would deliberately not go in. He absolutely refused to go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. Congregation, this is so very, very precious. Because what do we see here? Is that the father deals with his elder son the same way he dealt with his younger son. As we saw last week, the father did not wait till the young man had reached him. But when the father saw his son coming at a great distance, he ran toward him. He took the initiative. He ran towards his son 
his son who had so defiled himself and he wrapped his arms around that son. And here we see that that same father loves this elder son as much as he loved the younger son. And he does not wait until his son finally made it to the inside when he no doubt heard, when he no doubt was informed by his servants that his older son refused to come in. He goes out to seek him out. You see, that's, that's the character. That's what the two segments of the parable have in common. The same father who runs out to meet the prodigal son, the younger one, is the same father who is so concerned about his elder son that he does not wait for him to come in. No, he goes out and reaches out to him and entreats him. In other words, he pleads with him. He repeatedly pleads with this young man to come in and to join the celebration of the return of his younger brother. Now I want you to just look at, at verse 28, if you have your Bibles open, because I think there's something so, so significant here. Because congregation, this, this is who God is. Because by nature, we are all like this elder son. By nature, we refuse to be persuaded. By nature, we ignore the loving entreaties of God in the gospel. Because that's what God is doing. That's what God has been doing your whole life. Boys and girls, from the moment you were born, what happened this morning happened in your life as well. From the moment you were born, God has been pursuing you with His Word. God has come to you in His Word. He has proffered peace and pardon. In the gospel, He entreats us to return unto Him in spite of the fact that by nature we are just like the elder son and we will not go in. That's why Jesus said in John 5 to the Pharisees, He said, you will not come unto me that you have life. That's how we are by nature. That's the depravity of our human heart. And of course, what's evident here is that that younger, that older son who appeared to be such a nice young man, that that older son was as depraved as his younger son. But it's a picture congregation of all of us. That's why if by grace we may number ourselves among the people of God, is that the God who has pursued us with the gospel has also made us willing in the day of His power. Because as long as we continue on our own pathway, what that really means, because every time the gospel is preached, every time God draws near to us, Every time God comes to us with His Word. But our unbelief by nature, our unbelief is so powerful, it's so dominant that we refuse to be persuaded. That's why in 1 Peter, when Peter says, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And the Greek word that is used there, what shall be the end of them that refuse to be persuaded. 
And so if we grow up under the gospel, if we live under gospel preaching, boys and girls, if you live in a home where God's word is taught, and you're going to a school where you are instructed in, within the context of that word, and if you still are continuing in sin, if you still have not repented of your sins and taken refuge to Christ, it's not because God has not worked in you. The root cause is what we see here. is by nature we refuse to be persuaded. This young man refused to be persuaded. He would not go in. But in spite of the fact that he would not go in, the father nevertheless comes out to him and, tries to and seeks to persuade him and treats him, pleads with him to come inside. That's the character of God that's set before us here again, congregation. That is the God who has no pleasure in your death. That's the God who desires your salvation. That is the God who surrounds you with His precious Word. That is the God who draws near to us time and again in His Word and says, Sinner, seek me and live. And so we see that this young man is not just the younger son who is hopelessly lost, but this young man is also hopelessly lost. And here we have a young man who is blind, blind, utterly blind to who he is. A young man who thinks so very highly of himself, because listen to how he responds to his father. He says, lo, these many years I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. So, boys and girls, do you notice something in this verse 29? What is the, the dominant word that we hear in that verse? I, 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 me, me. It's all about him. And it's telling what he says because when he says, Lo, these years do I serve thee, that's the Greek verb that's related to the word doulos. I have been your slave. So what does that reveal about that answer? That simply tells him, yes, he served his father, but he did not do it willingly. He did not do it lovingly. No, he slaved for his father. I have slaved for you, he says. And neither transgressed I at any time that commandment. I have always told the line. I've always done what you told me to do. And yet thou never gavest me a kit that I might make merry with my friends. So what is he revealing here? What is he revealing here is that he now feels he should have been rewarded long ago for what a loyal son he had been to his father. Even though it's evident from his answer that there was no love for his father in his heart at all. He simply did this for his own advantage. And that's the mark of a self-righteous Pharisee. That's why the Pharisees so hated the ministry of Christ, because Christ exposed them for who they really were. 
He said, you are nothing but whited sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but within there is nothing but the stench of death. He exposed them that ultimately these men, they did not love God at all. And it's obvious from this confession that this young man only did this for his own advantage. And what he reveals is that I would have loved to have done what my younger brother did. I would have loved to have had a good time. I would have loved to have a party. I would have loved to have made merry with my friends. But for other reasons, he had not done so. But what this does is answer, it reveals. It reveals his heart. It reveals his real character. It exposed what kind of a person he really was. And that's why, time and again, you read in the Gospels how annoyed, how offended they were with Christ. We read in Luke 5, verse 30, but their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And again, that reveals exactly what this here reveals. This reveals that this young man thought very highly of himself. And so did the scribes and Pharisees. But remember, Christ cares about scribes and Pharisees. He's deliberately telling this story. He's deliberately provoking them by means of this story. Because he wants these men to realize that all of their outward righteousness, all of their outward credentials are of no value in the sight of God. He wants these men to realize that they are absolutely lost and undone. And how encouraging it is to what we know from Scripture that Christ also saved Pharisees. Nicodemus was one of them. How about Saul of Tarsus, who called himself the Pharisee of all Pharisees? And we read early on in the book of Acts that many of the Pharisees, many of the priests, came to conversion. Christ came to seek and save even such as they were. And so the core elements of, their, of the self-righteous reaction of the scribes and Pharisees, the core elements of what we see unveiled in the response of this young man is the, the elevation of self, the thinking highly of self, and a, an utter disdain for those who don't live up to our standards and looking down upon others. And who of us has never been guilty of that. Who of us has never been guilty of thinking of ourselves more highly than others are? Who of us have not been guilty to think that our way of living, our, our way in which we order our lives, is superior to others, looking down upon others? That's why Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. We read in Luke 18, verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. That's the story here. And that they were righteous and despised others. That's why he, he says in such denigrating terms in verse 30, But as soon as this thy son was come, 
He cannot even, even bring himself to call him his brother. As soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Now, whether the younger son ever spent his money on harlots, he probably did. But this young man, this young man here obviously thinks the worst of his brother. He's saying, you have killed for that bum, for that man who lived in sin, you have killed for him the fatted calf. The congregation, we need to understand that though we may not have been guilty of living in sin as others do, and we are surrounded by people who live very sinful and immoral lifestyles. We see them everywhere. But we need to realize, boys and girls, that we are no better than they are. Though we may outwardly not live like they do, in God's sight, we are equally sinful. We are equally undone. We are equally unrighteous. This young man did not love his father just like his younger brother did. And so this young man was guilty of what we call a a holier-than-thou attitude. Isaiah 65, verse 5. Stand by thyself. Come not near to me, for I am holier-than-thou. And of course, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, Christ really unveils the thinking of the Pharisees there as well. Because the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. So ultimately, this young man felt that he had earned the right to his father's favor. That because of all that he had done, he deserved to be rewarded. And he says, why have you never rewarded me? And you have rewarded this who is your son. And so this is the picture, too, of what we would call a legalist. That's what the Pharisees were. They were legalists. And what is a legalist? A legalist is someone who believes that God will reward them for their deeds, their accomplishments. So a legalist believes that the stricter he lives, the better is the chance that God will respond to him favorably. That's why a legalist, that's what the Pharisees were. They were legalists. They went beyond even what God required. And they were the ones who were teaching the people that in order for, that, for anyone to be accepted by God, they had to measure up to their standard of righteousness. That's why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what was true for the scribes and Pharisees? In spite of this outward veneer of religion, this outward veneer of righteousness, is that Christ's ministry exposed their heart, exposed the heart of men, who secretly loved sin. A heart that was void of love, just like this young man. 
a young man who was no different ultimately than the rich young ruler. A rich young ruler who was also very, very pleased with himself, who comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A young man who, in his own estimation, believed that he lived a blameless life. And you know the story where Jesus begins to recount the, the commandments. You can just tell in his own mind, he's check mark, check mark. He says, all these things have I kept from my youth. And Jesus says, go sell everything you have and follow me. Exposing, exposing that this outward veneer was hiding a heart that loved sin. Hiding a covetous heart. That's what happened here in this whole incident. The father's treatment of the younger son when he returns as a repentant younger son exposes the ugliness of the heart of the elder brother who outwardly thought he had all the credentials that made him worthy that the father would have treated him likewise. Then the father comes with this very loving rebuke. That's our third point. So we have seen the eldest son's inquiry, his angry response, and now the father's loving rebuke. And he said unto him, and then what follows? A rebuke? Does he rebuke him for his attitude? Does he rebuke him for his obnoxious behavior? No. Again, look at the parallel with the younger son. When that younger son returned in all of his vileness with his rags, with the stench of the pigsty, not one word of rebuke. The father runs to him and he embraces him. And here this father, this loving father who left the party, who came out to seek after this elder brother as well, he doesn't rebuke him. And lovingly he says, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. And I don't want to allegorize this statement. What, what he's simply saying in the parable, Son, you've always been in my presence. You have always had all of the advantages. You've always been with me. What more could you have asked for that I have not given you? So again, he said that to bring this young man to his senses. To make him stop and consider that what his reaction, his angry reaction, was entirely unreasonable. And obviously this father grieves, grieves deeply. And it's not beautiful that he calls him son. In Greek it says, child, my child. Even though this young man had responded in such an offensive way, even though this young man in such, a pain, in such a painful way had communicated to his dad that he had no love for him at all, that the only reason he did what he did was for his own advantage. And he says, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Isn't that the God of salvation? Is that not the God of the gospel? Is that not the God who draws near to us in the gospel? Even though by nature we offend him, we despise him, we have no desire after the knowledge of our, his ways. 
even though by nature we turn our back towards him, isn't that the God who draws near to us? And who's saying time and again, my son, my daughter, give me thy heart, son. And then he says, it was meet that we should be merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And so what is he trying to do here? What the father is doing. He is trying to arrest this, this wicked expression of this young man. He is trying to bring him to his senses. He's trying to convict him. He's trying to say to him, but my, my son, should I not rejoice in the fact that your brother has come back? And so lovingly, he corrects him here because he didn't, even, he didn't even deem him worthy to be called his brother. He said, this thy son, he said sneeringly. And the father said, no, he is your brother. He was dead and is alive again. And so what we see here is that the father seeks to win his son with love. Seeks to win him with love. Even as he did with Cain. Cain, when God confronted Cain with what he was about to do, what did God say to Cain? He said, sin lies at the door. What has really been enlightening to me is when I, I read in Andrew Bonar's commentary on Leviticus, a lengthy statement about this. And Andrew Bonar says the Greek or the Hebrew is actually saying the sin offering lies at the door. And I just really love the way Bonar explains this. So, because what that's, what actually, and it actually then makes sense, at least to me. So what, what God is saying to Cain, yes, I rejected your sacrifice. And why? For the same reason. Because this elder brother mentality that was in Cain as well. Cain who refused to bring the bloody sacrifice. Cain who brought his own, whatever he had produced in the field, who would not surrender to God's way. That's why God rejected the sacrifice. Then he says, Cain, he knew what, what he intended to do. He, was, he intended to kill his brother. But he said, Cain, the sin offering lies at the door. If you come to me the way your brother has come, if you bring the appropriate sacrifice, if you come with a lamb, I will receive you as well. I will be as gracious to you as I've been to my brother. Or to your brother. That's the character of God, you see. That's what we see here. A father who with love tries to win his son. And then invites him to the celebration. And the story ends. We don't know the outcome. We don't know whether the father actually succeeded in bringing his son into that celebration. And so, congregation, Christ ends this remarkable story by again emphasizing, by again emphasizing the theme of this entire story, this threefold story. Thy brother was dead and is alive again 
and was lost and is found. That's the bottom line of this story. That's the bottom line of the gospel. That's the bottom line of the life of every believer. We were lost. We were completely lost. We either lived like the younger son or we were like that older son, but we were lost. And by the grace of God, we have been found. That's, of course, what that statement clearly emphasizes, is that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is the result of God's initiative. I am found of them that sought me not. And so this whole story sets before us a God who has no pleasure in the death of sinners, whether they are publicans, whether they are harlots, or whether they are Pharisees and scribes. He has no pleasure in the death of sinners. And God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, whether he be a Pharisee or whether he be a publican, believes on him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why if we, by the grace of God, are a believer today, oh, there is no room for boasting. It's only because he found us. We were lost. We were lost, completely lost. But by the grace of God, he found us. And that's why it's so disturbing that even believers sometimes can display this elder brother mentality. That usually means that we're not in a good place. Because when we're in the right place, when we, see our, when we continue to see ourselves the way God sees us, we will not be able to express ourselves in, in such a way. So we have to ask ourselves whether we, have, we are guilty of this mentality as well. I'm just wondering what would happen if as a result of the work of our evangelism committee, some Sunday somebody walks in covered with tattoos with pink or purple hair. Or someone were to walk in that would carry a Hamas shawl, thereby demonstrating who they are. How would we receive such a person? Would we receive him and embrace him? Or would we be guilty of an elder brother mentality? I read the story of a a man who had been invited to come to church. He lived a sinful life. He was a sailor, had a drinking problem. And finally, he decided he would accept the invitation. But what he always did, whenever he would get nervous, he would drink a little extra to, to calm himself down. So as he sat down, he, he smelled like liquor. And so what happened when he sat down? The people around him began to move away. They moved away from him. They did not embrace him. And he finally felt he was not welcome, and he left. This poor man left because of an elder brother mentality. And so therefore, this, this history compels us to look into the mirror 
the mirror of this story. Because I can assure you, when we see ourselves the way God sees us, when we are truly meek and humble, we can never look down upon another sinner. The Puritan John Bradford famously said, I'm sure you've heard this before, when he saw someone being led to the gallows, he said, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so it is. And so the bottom line of this entire story is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that in Christ, God is prepared and welcome and ready to welcome sinners who come to him, whether they are elder sons or younger sons. For whoever comes to him shall in no wise be cast out. Amen. Lord, we give thee thanks that we could gather in thy house today, that thy word came to us also tonight, a word that calls us to serious self-examination, a word that compels us to examine our hearts and lives in thy presence, whether we are guilty of that elder brother disposition that Christ so graphically described for us in this story. And Lord, how powerfully this story teaches us that ultimately we all have the same heart, a heart that is hostile to thee, a heart that is void of love for thee, but a story that tells us that thou as the God of salvation, that thou dost go out to seek such sinners, that thou dost desire the salvation of younger sons and older sons. And so bless this word. And if by grace we cannot deny that we have found salvation in Christ, oh, that we would recognize afresh that we have been found. And if thou hadst not sought us, if thou hadst not drawn us and conquered us by thy grace, we would continue in our sin, either openly or secretly. And so go with us now as we depart from here. And we pray that the rest of this day our conversation would be such that the birds of the air will not take away the seed that has been sown. Bless us in this coming week. Protect us in all that we do. Bless the labor of our hands. Bless our children and young people in school and college. And forgive our sins for Christ's sake alone. Amen.